This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Then, this morning's word is called Finding Your Gifts. And I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Now, my dear brothers, I want to clear up a false understanding about spiritual gifts. Do you remember that when you were outside the faith, you were irresistibly drawn to false idols? It's for this reason I want you to understand that no one can be speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit and use the name of Jesus as a curse word. Nor can anyone say that Jesus is Lord unless he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. There are a variety of gifts, but always the same Spirit. There are all sorts of service to be rendered, but always to the same Lord, working in all sorts of different ways in different people. But it is the same God working in all of them. To each person has been given the ability to manifest the Spirit for the common good. To one has been given a message of wisdom by the Spirit. To another, the ability to speak with knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gift of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to discern between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit produces all of these results and gives what he chooses to each person. Now, I find it interesting because Paul spends the whole of chapter 12 talking about the gifts. But he begins by saying this. Do you know what? There's a problem here. There's a problem with the spiritual gifts because you people have come out of paganism. And you have a tendency to idolatry. And there is a real risk that when the gifts are manifested among you, you will end up worshipping the person that holds the gift. And he goes through the whole of that chapter, and he talks about how the gifts relate to the body, and we're each part of that body, and finally ends the chapter by saying, look, there's, there's something more important than gifts, and that's love. And then he moves into chapter 13, which it's such an iconic piece of scripture, even atheists at their wedding read it out. And if you go through chapter 13, he basically goes through the gifts and says, so what? Without love, it's nothing. If love isn't there, this is pointless. If love is absent from this gift, you know what? It could actually turn into something bad. So it's important to understand the gifts are important. But on their own, they could end up destroying you. Or they could end up damaging and destroying other people. They could end up destroying your faith. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus gives a description of the end time. He says, on that day, people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and heal in your name and cast out demons in your name? And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. The gifts, however powerful, are not the proof of salvation. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is the proof of the salvation that you have. And this morning we're talking about the gifts. We're not talking about the fruit. So God has given us a variety of spiritual gifts. They're given to individuals, but they're given for the benefit of the church. And sometimes it's difficult to number the gifts because they're mentioned in different ways and different terms are used. And sometimes we use terms from the King James Bible to describe them. But basically, I believe there is about 20 in total. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, miracles, healing, serving, administration, faith, compassion, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues, encouraging, giving, leadership, wisdom, knowledge, and prophecy. These gifts have been given to us as a result of Jesus' victory over death. The gifts are meant to equip the saints for work of service. They empower and protect us. They stop us being misled by false doctrine and the deceit of men. 
We're told to desire the gifts in 1 Corinthians 14.1, especially the greater gifts in 1 Corinthians 12.31. However, the history of the church is very often the history of either people claiming to have gifts that they clearly don't have, individuals nurturing gifts that the church never allows them to use, or people who have no idea that they possess certain gifts and so never get to use them. In fact, the misidentification of gifts creates dysfunction in the church and the thwarted development of individuals. And I think there's two biggest basic problems. On the one hand, particularly within Pentecostalism, which believes in the gifts, we believe in the spiritual gifts in particular. One of the big problems with Pentecostalism is that we have kind of gone down the road down the years, probably thanks to America. We like beautiful people. We do like the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, bouffant look. And we love that kind of persona of wealth and health and beauty that goes hand-in-hand with spiritual power. And as a result, we do have a tendency to reject those who don't fit within that mode, within that model. We feel a little bit embarrassed sometimes by the disabled. We feel a little bit put off by those who might have mental health problems. We tend to kind of push them to one side. This was brought home to me massively when we moved to Swansea in 84, and an old friend of ours asked us to come to their church and to sell their church to us. This is what they said. Ian, you've got to understand, there are no disabled people in our church. And I just, I just had this image of you get to the church door and there's a sign with somebody in a wheelchair and a line through it. I mean, where was this person coming from? We stayed away from that church for five years. For that very reason. I thought it was like an Aryan master Superman church or something. And the first time we went there, the first person I saw was a young girl with Down syndrome. And I said, ah, so they are just like the rest of us, aren't they? They're just normal. But guess what? I remember within a few months, Sunday morning, pray for people with needs. What did I see? I saw a woman come up to that kid who was about six years of age, put her hand on that kid's head and say, Lord, make her face normal. And her mother was standing next. I looked at her mother, the look of horror on her mother's eyes, but her mother didn't say anything because there was that strain back in the 80s of this idea that we are a perfect people. And I thought to myself, if you'd done that to my kid, there'd be two people who'd need their face reshaped. I tell you that now. (laughs) Who are you to say what is normal? Seriously, can the pot say to the potter, we're all different. We are made in different ways. And some people have disabilities and some people have mental health problems. So what? You are made by God. My goodness. There is something. Thank you. (laughs) Best leave when the going's good. Uh, but there is, there is this strain of almost like fascism within some churches, you know? And it's obscene. On the other hand, you've got madness within some churches. I mean, Jesus at one point said, if you drink poison, it won't kill you. And if you handle a snake, it won't kill you if it bites you. There are, church hand, there are snake-handling churches in America. I mean, it's just, I can't get my head around it. They actually handle snakes on a Sunday morning. I mean, you know, they're not growing churches, I've got to say. You know, they're not increasing. <laughs> and if you go to those churches, look around the graveyards, most people do die on a Sunday. But I tell you this stuff. <laughs> how mad do you have to be to imagine that somehow handling a poison snake is a sign of God's spirituality in your life? I, I just don't get it. Paul's warning is that there is a risk that the gifts will lead to idolatry or will lead to madness or lead to a kind of fascism. 
And we do that by worshipping in the end the image of the gift holder. And that is just so contrary to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. The gifts can be divided into those that have a miraculous aspect and those that are functional. Compassion, administration, encouraging, giving, leadership, teaching, wisdom, serving. Guess what? They are spiritual gifts, but they're not supernatural gifts in the sense that they violate the laws of physics, as opposed to prophecy and healing and faith and discernment and miracles and tongues, interpretation of tongues and knowledge. Those have a supernatural aspect that really do seem as if they've broken the laws of physics. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Since you aspire to spiritual gifts, concentrate on those that will grow to benefit the community. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. At all your meetings, let everyone be ready with a psalm or a sermon or a revelation or ready to use the gift of tongues to give an interpretation. But it must always be for the common good. There is a dynamic to do with the gifts that are meant to be displayed when the brothers and sisters get together. Are you seeking a gift? My advice to you, ask, what does your church need? Do you know what? Some gifts are prominent and some gifts are hidden. And if you want a prominent gift, is it because you want the gift or you want the prominence? And you've really got to ask yourself that, you know? Because if you get that wrong, I mean, seriously, you're going to go down the wrong road. I mean, very often within churches, you have a kind of idolatry of the leadership. The leadership. The, the apostle's coming. The prophet has arrived. And it's like, you know, it, I've always felt uncomfortable with it. Probably because I grew up in a valley where nobody regarded anybody as being important. I mean, we're all basically the same people. You know, we wouldn't bow down and, and kiss the feet of the queen, for example. We'd probably end up throwing Exeter or something. And I think, you know, there is this kind of thing within people to, to want to worship human beings. And, and it can come out with leadership in church. And you know what? There is a biblical hierarchy. There is a hierarchy in the church. It's mentioned in the Word of God. And do you know that leadership comes out very near the bottom? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 to 31 says this. You all make up the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of that body. And in the church, God has given first place to apostles. Second to prophets, third to teachers, then miracle workers, then healers, then those who serve, then those who lead, and finally those who speak in tongues. Not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are teachers, not all do miracles, not all can heal, not all speak in tongues, not all interpret tongues. So earnestly desire the higher gifts. But now I will show you a more excellent way. And then he feeds into chapter 13 when he talks about love. Love will stop you turning yourself into an idol and your gift into a curse. What is the point of leadership? Somebody's got to pay the gas bill. That's always been my feeling. But I guess they have other rules as well. Okay, four things I want to say this morning after that introduction. And the first one is this. Your reputation precedes your calling. Thinking of the example of Philip in Acts. We have this verse, chapter 6, verse 3 of Acts. Therefore select seven men from among yourselves who have a good reputation and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint for this need. Now, that need is often described as like running uh, a food bank. But it's more complex than that. The church has grown to include the Gentiles, the Greeks, alongside the Hebrews. And there's a division in the church between these two groups who historically hate each other. And there are people asking for financial and food support. Philip and the other guys have been appointed not to run a food bank, 
but basically to be like uh, benefit assessors in the benefit agency. They're going to interview people, and they're going to decide whether somebody deserves support or not. Now, I don't know if you've ever claimed benefits, but if you had, probably somebody's assessed your claim. And if your claim was turned down because it turned out they didn't feel you were disabled, if you were applying for dis disability benefits, how did you feel about that person? Were you filled with joy and happiness and a general feeling of warmth? Probably not. This is Philip's job, okay? This is why he needs wisdom to discern. It's why he has to have a good reputation, so he's not going to be biased to one group or another. It's why he needs the Holy Spirit to be full of the Holy Spirit. And that is clearly a reference to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, where the fruit of the Spirit is described. Love, joy, peace, patience, compassion, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we were doing this today, we'd probably say, could the ladies meet in the kitchen after the service because we want to ask them something? But in those days, because they're running basically a welfare system for the church, they needed people with exceptional ability and exceptional gifts. Your reputation is simply the history of your past behavior. If you have a history of moving churches often, failing to commit to fellowships, of living a life that violates biblical principles, of preferring to take rather than give, if you are of an unsound mind, a gossip, an accuser of the brethren, a complainer, or just a complete and utter idiot, do not be surprised if the gifting in you goes unrecognized or unused. You are a potential danger to the faith. And if you fall into that category in whole or in part, the first thing you've got to do is face the truth. Just recognize that that is who you are. And having done that, then you need to change the truth. But you can't change the truth until you face the truth. Build a new reputation. It's as simple as that. One of my favorite bikes is a Honda VFR uh, made in 1988. My boy's got it at the moment. He's just driven up from Stroud. He's up at the house. That VFR, that 750 VFR, is regarded as the most reliable bike ever made. In fact, when I was down in M&P buying um, some oil for the bike, the guy who was serving me said that he knew a guy in London who was a courier who had ridden 800,000 miles on his VFR and had never had the engine rebuilt. The reason why it's such a reliable bike is because the previous version of that bike was unreliable. And of course, Honda make their money by selling reliable vehicles. So they spent millions of pounds re-engineering the bike, making sure that the valves work properly to create a bike they could never make a profit on. But which, you know what? It would restore the reputation of Honda. You, if you have a bad reputation, you can restore your reputation just by changing the way you live and changing the way you do things. Very often by doing the opposite to what you've done in the past. And you're going to have to do that if you want to have the gifts released into your life. The trouble is, sometimes, guess what? You're not the problem. The problem is the people you surround yourself with. British Leyland, some of you may remember, had a terrible reputation. In the same year that the Volkswagen brought out the Golf, uh, British Leyland brought out the Allegro. The Golf is still going strong. The Allegro died a death because it was a really rubbish car. But you know what? There were some good makes within BL. Jaguar, Land Rover, the Mini. But you know what? All of those makes would have died if they hadn't been hived off from British Leyland. And now they're really doing well. Maybe you need to separate yourself from people who are making your reputation bad simply because, you know what? You're associated with people who do you no good. In fact, the Apostle Paul says at one point, quoting an old Greek uh, saying, you know, uh, bad company can 
make awful the best of people. And that is something that you need to be aware of. Of course, maybe you're the one who's making other people's reputations bad, in which case, seriously, you need to change. Changing takes time, but God has plenty of time. I don't have time. I'm in too much of a hurry. I've got this gift in me. The world is going to hell in a handcart. I need to get out there and do stuff straight away. I am impatient to see God move. Well, there we are. You've admitted that you're lacking one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Patience. Guess what? Patience is one of the fruit, and you just ain't got it. How does God deal with impatient people? He normally sends them into the desert. He did it with Moses. He was impatient. He had a great gifting in him. He knew he had a great gifting in him. And he sent him into the desert for 40 years until finally he gave up. If your life is a spiritual wilderness, then maybe it's because you have evidenced impatient. For myself, my goodness, I was the most impatient man alive. Do you know what? I think people with energy are always impatient because they want to get things done. And I had to go into a wilderness to lose that impatience in me. And it's one of the reasons, oddly enough, I like walking on Black Mountain because you see something in the distance, a cairn or a rock, and you want to get there. It takes you six hours to get there. You know, walking slows you down, okay? It builds patience into people. But we live in an age of impatience. We want fast food and instant deliveries and instant news and instant information. And as a result, the British were once good at queuing. And now, guess what? We just don't know how to wait. But there's nothing new in that. The disciples were impatient. What does it say in Acts 1? Has the time come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel, they asked Jesus. And Jesus replied, wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you are empowered from on high through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wait on God that you might achieve the level of, I guess, not perfection, but certainly character whereby you can carry a gift and use it to change people. The trouble is, particularly within Pentecostalism, we are so impatient to see people saved, we lie by faith. A friend of mine put on Facebook a short while ago, 224 people saved in Swansea. No, they weren't. 224 people made a commitment in Swansea. They weren't saved. If you'd said 224 people were baptized, then happily, I'd, yes, they are saved by faith. But goodness me, how many people make a commitment? How many then go on to be baptized? And how many then go on to live a life that is pleasing to God? Yeah. Do you know what? Just speak the truth as it is, however palatable or unpalatable it may be. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, talks about patience and a right time for things. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to reap. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw things away and a time to gather. A time to embrace and a time to walk away. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to keep quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What is this time in your life for? Do you know the seasons are imposed on us? We don't choose them. Harvest comes in the summer. You can't do it in the winter. Sowing comes in the spring. 
You get the seasons wrong. You sleep at harvest. You don't sow in the spring. Do you know what? You will starve in the winter. In some churches, you can't cry because they're happy, smiley-faced churches where everybody is positive and crying is a sign that God has gone out the door. In other churches, you can't laugh because that's not holy. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. There's a time to labor and there's a time to reap. What is this time in your life? The seasons are imposed upon us. We do not choose them, but then we have to act accordingly. In your life, the first 25 years of your life, you're preparing the ground for the rest of your life. The next 25 years, you are sowing. Hopefully, for the next 25 years, you reap. But sometimes the seasons are cut short. Sometimes they're extended. It shows your character when you deal with the seasons in an appropriate way. Your reputation will determine if you will be able to use the gift that God gives you. There is this lovely, slightly complex verse, Luke chapter 16, verse 12, where Jesus says, If you are not faithful in what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? It's an odd thing to say because with our kids we might say, Do you know what? I, you wasted your pocket money and now guess what? I'm not going to give you somebody else's money to look after or whatever. But Jesus turns it around. The only way you can understand it is to recognize that the Apostle Paul talks about adoption. We've been adopted into a new family, into a new kingdom. But he's talking about Roman adoption. He's not talking about our adoption. We adopt kids who for some reason don't have parents. In the Roman system, the majority of people who were adopted were adults. Tiberius, when he was 45 years of age, was adopted by Augustus. And when he was adopted, do you know what happened? Up until then, he'd been the head of his household. Now he had no household at all. He had to hand over all his money. He had to give over all his titles. He lost everything to become Augustus's adopted son. He did that because for eight years, he'd refused to work for Augustus, and now he wanted to get back into Augustus's favor. And then Augustus controlled everything about Tiberius. But sometimes... The part of familias, as he was called, the head of the family, would give gifts to his adopted sons. And in those days, you know, they were going to give them a gift, what, a box of chocolates? No, they'd give them a province or a city or a huge villa or something. And if they were given a gift, then it was theirs to do with as they wish. When you became a Christian, everything you had, you handed over to Jesus Christ. Your thoughts, your body, your money, your life. Your time, you cease to be the owner of all of that. It all goes to Jesus Christ. And then Christ looks at you and says, are you making good use of the things that belong to me? And if the answer is yes, do you know what? Then he will give you the gifts. So we're accountable from day one. It's why Jesus says, you know, when you become a Christian, consider the cost. The cost is huge. The cost is everything. You hand it all over to him. And then hopefully he gives you back the things that you need that will be yours that you can use to make the world and yourself a better place. So your reputation precedes your calling. Second thing, serving and sacrifice unlocks the gifting. The example of Martha and Mary in Luke 10 and John 11 and John 12 illustrates it beautifully. Martha's annoyed in Luke 10 that Mary does not help her. But when she complains, Jesus says that listening is better than serving. 
However, when Lazarus has died in, Luke, in John 11, it's Martha who comes up to meet Jesus, who states that he has the power to resurrect the dead, recognizes he's the Messiah, the Son of God, while Mary refuses to meet Jesus until called, and only then to accuse him of letting her brother die. Those who serve will receive revelation from God. Now, Mary does learn to serve, and she does learn to sacrifice after the resurrection of Lazarus. Because in John chapter 12, she anoints Jesus with oil. And how many times have I heard preaching on that? This oil is so expensive. It's like several years' wages, and, you know, it's valuable. And Jesus himself says, you've anointed me for my, my own funeral. And people concentrate on that. But think of it. What exactly did Martha sacrifice? Do you know what she sacrificed? She sacrificed time. And I'll tell you this now, time is more precious than money. If I give you 10 grand, you'd be very surprised, and so would I, but I tell you this, <laughs> I can make that money back. Take a little while, I'll make it back. And once I've made it back, it hasn't cost me anything, has it? But if I give you 10 minutes of my time, I will never get that back as long as I live. It's the most precious thing in the universe. What is this time in your life for? Maybe this is the time, guess what, for someone other than yourself. Because when you give time to people, you give them the most precious thing that you possibly have. And that's what Martha did. She gave her time to Jesus. Don't imagine the day you join a church, you'll be asked to preach. Where do you serve? Where there is a need. But you know what? Some gifts gravitate to certain works of service. I've always believed that every teacher and every preacher should actually begin by teaching in Sunday school. You are sheep this morning. Do you know that? God calls you sheep. What do sheep do? Sheep feed themselves. They just wander around and they chew grass. And all I'm doing this morning maybe is pointing you to new pastures, new places where you can feed yourself. But you don't need me to preach or anybody else to preach this morning to feed yourself. You can do it because you're sheep. But you know what? Sheep, as they get older, they lose their teeth. Their teeth fall out. That's why they all die in the end between the ages of 10 and 12 if they're left alone. They can no longer feed themselves. And the sad thing is there's so many churches where the sheep are not feeding themselves. On a Sunday morning, they're being given milk and they're being given milk every single Sunday, and in the end, their teeth fall out from lack of use, and then they become anemic, which means they're open to infection from false doctrine, and then they're hungry all the time. They're desperate for somebody to feed them. They've been infantilized. They've turned back into being lambs. It's an absolute tragedy. On the other hand, up in Sunday school, there are lambs. They can't feed themselves. They need somebody to feed them, to give them the milk of the Word of God. And that's why being a Sunday school teacher is so much more important than being a preacher on a Sunday morning. And yet, our value system is so upside down, this is the prominent gift, and that's the hidden gift. And guess what? We're happy to take anyone to teach in Sunday school. But on a Sunday morning, you've got to be a special person to be able to speak to the sheep. It don't matter. Your sheep, you can feed yourselves. They can't. And the falling away has occurred. Do you know why? Because we haven't been feeding the lambs the correct stuff for years. And lambs that don't get fed, they die in the faith and they don't become sheep. Churches without Sunday schools die. The sheep just get old and toothless. And they stop feeding themselves. I've been in those churches. It's, 
dreadful, absolutely dreadful. As for me, I taught in Sunday school from 75 to 96, and I look back on it and I think, do you know what? I had more fun doing that than, than anything else. The problem in the church is that we can take servants for granted. Uh, we know to do all things unto the Lord, but sometimes, do you know what? It can be hard, particularly with gifts that aren't prominent, like Sunday school, to be taken for granted. I think of mums who work full-time through the week, and there's a dad there who's working full-time, and there's teenage kids. But I suspect that when the mum comes home from work, um, the hoovering hasn't been done, and the washing hasn't been done, and the clothes haven't been done, and there isn't a meal there waiting for her. Very often what happens is that she's expected to do all of that, as well as go outside the house and work. Teenagers just drop their clothes on the floor because mum will pick it up. They are capable of doing the washing, but our mum will do it. I mean, it's a dreadful way to treat your mother, isn't it? And in fact, as long as some, some ladies are agreeing, I don't, I don't know why, I can't believe that's happening in this church. But you know what? As long as she keeps on serving like that, they'll keep on abusing her like that. And sometimes, guess what? The mum's got to go on strike. She's just got to say, no, I'm not going to do it this week. And chaos ensues, but you know what? If you carry adults, all you do is turn them back into babies. Sometimes they need to carry themselves. Am I saying that servants should go on strike? No, I'm not. What I'm actually saying is this. The way you treat the servants is the way you treat Jesus Christ. So if you take them for granted and you disrespect them, you're doing it to Jesus. And you will pay a price for that. There is a cost to treating the non-prominent gifts in that kind of way. So, serving and sacrifice unlock the gifting. Thirdly, you are drawn to use your gift. Following persecution, Philip leaves Jerusalem, and what does he do? Lie on a beach in Tel Aviv? No, he evangelizes the Samaritan town. He baptizes an Ethiopian governor. Then he continues his journey to Caesarea, evangelizing every town that he visits. We next find him 15 years later in Caesarea with four daughters, all of whom can prophesy. He's now known as Philip the Evangelist. Being drawn to your gift not only means that you are comfortable with it, but that it actually expresses something about who you really are. In a sense, you become the gift, and the gift then becomes a blessing to others. The ultimate gift is the person in whom the gift has come alive. I remember reading um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, book, Gulag Archipelago, about the Soviet concentration camp system. And um, the Soviet authorities made sure they couldn't have access to Bibles. But every now and then they'd get a scrap of scripture. And somebody would memorize the scripture. And then thereafter that person was known by that scripture. So they might be called John 10 or they might be called 1 Corinthians 13. And at the end of a hard day of labor, you'd go looking. You'd say, where's 1 Corinthians 13? they say, oh, he's over there having lunch, having something to eat. And you'd go to him and he could recite to you all of those verses. They became the actual verses. The word became flesh, literally, in that case. And you see in Ephesians 5, the gifts have actually become the people. The gift is the apostle. The gift is the teacher. The gift is the pastor. And if you're an evangelist, if that's your gift, do you know what? You're already knocking on doors. You're already talking to the people on the street. You don't need to be asked. You're doing it. You're drawn to that gift. You're impelled towards it. If your gift is compassion, you will be already volunteering with social services, working with drug agencies, working with the homeless, or maybe you've even turned it into a career. You're doing that job to earn your living. My daughter 
as the gift of compassion. I saw that very early on. And when she was 16, she went to work in a nursing home on a Saturday morning. She was there from nine till one. And every Saturday when we came home from shopping about one, I'd see my daughter sitting on the settee crying. And I'd say, what's wrong? And it was always the same thing. Every time she went up to the nursing home, which is across the road from where we live, there'd be an old lady there of 80, holding a Tesco bag full with a few possessions. And the first thing she'd say is, my daddy's coming to take me home today. And the first time that happened, Elena was shocked. But then she realized this is a woman with dementia. I think she'd been a teacher or a nurse or something. All her memories had gone. All she could remember was being a seven-year-old and her dad coming to pick her up from school. And then Elena would take her by the hand and say, right, well, if your daddy's coming, maybe we should get you some breakfast. And maybe we should do your hair. And she'd take her inside and she'd be with her for four hours. She'd look after her. And all the time she's talking about her father. Day after day this was happening. Elena was only seeing her on a Saturday morning. Whose hand are you holding? Whose life are you making better? Who is it that you're being sought for and a blessing for? Very often, particularly within Pentecostal, it's just yourself and your family and maybe a few friends. The salt is in the jar and it's not much use, is it? You've got to reach out and you've got to hold people's hands and you've got to help them and you've got to give them a hug and you've got to give them time. And if you've got the gift of compassion, you will do that. You will do it. You're already doing it because you're impelled by that gift that is within you. If your gift is teaching, you're addicted to studying the Bible and absorbing the knowledge to explain it and you cannot help yourself. You will absorb it like a sponge. If your gift is leadership, guess what? People are following you already. People will follow you because you're going somewhere where they want to go. And if your gift is healing, you're going to be drawn to work with the physically and maybe the mentally sick long before that gift manifests itself as a supernatural gift. You will have worked as a nurse. You will have become a doctor. You will have worked as a paramedic. You will have engaged with people as a counselor. You would have been going out there and already trying to heal people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 21 says this, For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I will be healed. If you have the gift of healing, people will be reaching out to touch you. And if you have the gift of compassion, you will be reaching out to touch them. Our beliefs have to be rooted in reality, not in fantasy. I serve a practical, not a theoretical God. So I must have a practical, not a theoretical faith. And who am I helping? Is it just me and my family? In which case I'm helping no one. Salt and light. What did Jesus say about salt when it's lost its saltiness? He said, throw it on the dunghill. Okay, that's, that's what he said then. I guess today he'd be saying something like, flush it down the toilet. Is that going to be the end result for Christians whose lives just bless themselves? They're flushed down some kind of cosmic toilet. What an end to a life pretending to be a Christian that never did any good to anyone else. Fourthly, practice makes perfect. You need to practice your gift. It's not fully formed because your character will shape it. The church should give you an opportunity to practice using your gift in a safe but not uncritical environment. You need to be told of your rubbish. Unconditional praise is as unhelpful as unconditional condemnation. You need honest, objective, helpful feedback so you can hone your gift. Now that takes guts to ask for it. It takes humility to accept it. And it takes wisdom to ask for it from the right person. 
And what if the church wrongly identifies your gift? Well, I remember that word from Scanlon all those years ago at Excel, where he talked about a guy who'd had his nose rebuilt after an accident, and they took a bit of his toe and put it in his nose, and they made it look like a nose, but every now and then, the nose started growing back into a toe, and he had to go back to the hospital to have it reshaped. Beautiful image of how, guess what, if your gift is healing and the church thinks you're a teacher, when you start teaching, all you're going to be doing is talking about healing. The gift will out. It, it will out, and hopefully the church will recognize that you have a gift in a certain area and put you in that area. But if it doesn't, the gift will be manifest. You know, if it's, they think you've got a teaching gift and it's evangelism, why isn't he in home group? Oh, he's knocking doors. He's getting the home group out to do evangelism. It all comes out in the wash. Gifting will out. And what if the church doesn't give you the opportunity to use your gift at all? Go outside the church. Simple as that. Don't be bound by these four walls or this morning. I mean, goodness me. I've got a gift of preaching. You may not agree with it, but there we are. <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was 16, I was allowed to preach in the Assemblies of God Church. But it, the gift was in the soil. It was a seed that wasn't really formed. The gift came into its own in my early 30s. And it's just like it budded forth. It just had this rush. I needed to preach. And I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't allowed to preach between uh, 1991 and 2008 in the three churches that I was in. And I was just, I was desperate to preach. So what did I do? Preach on the streets. Every second Saturday for three years. Neath, Skewen, Port Talbot, Swansea, Ammonford, Llanethley, Carmarthen. I got other people to come with me because I didn't want to look like an idiot standing on the road on my own. I'd rather have people with guitars and stuff. But do you know what? I, I just had to do it. And your gift, you know, you have to use it. And maybe the church doesn't just actually have the scope for using it. I mean, let's say you've got the gift of administration. I mean, how much administration goes into running a church? I mean, do you need the gift of administration to organize, you know, um, simple things like a rotor? Or on a Sunday morning to organize, you know, the, the, the bread and the wine? I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. But I tell you this now. Look at Swansea. Look at what happened to that city. The absence of the gift of administration there is so evident. I mean, that city has been destroyed by a local authority that has nobody in it with the gift of administration. Carmarthen's doing fine. Cardiff's doing great. Swansea, where is the Luftwaffe when you need them? My goodness, that city has been wrecked. If you've got the gift of administration, go to local government. Become a civil servant. Get into a firm. BA needs somebody with the gift of administration because they can't organize their IT systems. Maybe, maybe your gift will become your career, in which case you may be a blessing to a great many, many people. And how many Christians with the gift of healing end up choosing to work as doctors and as surgeons? Yeah, but they use knives and needles. Yeah, and Jesus used a pace once to make a person see. So guess what? The key is this. You need to reach out and you need to touch people with your gift, whether verbally or with a handshake or whatever. And if you're not touching people with your gift, it's not much use, is it? But don't just be confined to the church. We're here to serve the world. Let me just end with this. These are the words of encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy's an interesting guy. He's one of the first people probably to grow up in a Christian household. And Paul knows him, he knows his mother, he knows his grandmother. And these words of encouragement are for us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, and 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 to 8. 
Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy when the elders laid their hands on you. Think on these things. Devote your life to them so that everyone can see your progress. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, because if you do so, you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first existed in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I am convinced that this faith exists in you. For this reason, I'm reminding you to fan into flames the gift of God in you that came through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and self-discipline. So never be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, by God's power, join me in suffering for the sake of the gospel. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.